Chapter 1 of the American Credo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Adrienne Prevost. The American Credo, a contribution toward the interpretation of the national mind, by H. L. Mencken and George Jean Nathan. Chapter 1 Preface. The superficial, no doubt, will mistake this little book for a somewhat laborious attempt at jocosity, because, incidentally to its main purpose, it unveils occasional ideas of so inordinate an erroneousness that they verge upon the ludicrous, it will be set down a piece of spoofing and perhaps denounced as in bad taste. But all the while, that main purpose will remain clear enough to the judicious. It is, in brief, the purpose of clarifying the current exchange of rhetorical gas-bombs upon the subject of American ideals and the American character, so copious, so cocksure, and withal so ill-informed and inconclusive, by putting into plain propositions some of the notions that lie at the heart of those ideals, and enter into the very substance of that character. For as he thinketh in his heart, said Solomon, so is he. It is a saying, obviously, that one may easily fill with fantastic meanings as the prevailing gabble of the mental healers, new thoughters, efficiency engineers, professors of scientific salesmanship, and other such mountebanks demonstrates, but nevertheless it is one grounded, at bottom, upon an indubitable fact. Deep down in every man there is a body of congenital attitudes, a corpus of ineradicable doctrines and ways of thinking, that determines his reactions to his ideational environment, as surely as his physical activity is determined by the length of his tibiae and the capacity of his lungs. These primary attitudes, in fact, constitute the essential man. It is by recognition of them that one arrives at an accurate understanding of his place and function as a member of human society. It is by a shrewd reckoning and balancing of them, one against another, that one forecasts his probable behavior in the face of unaccustomed stimuli. All the arts and sciences that have to do with the management of men in the mass are founded upon a proficient practice of that sort of reckoning. The practical politician, as every connoisseur of ochlocracy knows, is not a man who seeks to inoculate the innumerable caravan of voters with new ideas. He is a man who seeks to search out and prick into energy the basic ideas that are already in them, and to turn the resultant effervescence of emotion to his own uses. And so, with the religious teacher, the social and economic reformer, and every other variety of popular educator, down to and including the humblest press agent of a fifth assistant secretary of state, moving picture actor, or YMCA boob-squeezing committee. Such adept professors of conviction and enthusiasm, in the true sense, never actually teach anything new, all they do is to give new forms to beliefs already in being, to arrange the bits of glass, onyx, horn, ivory, porphyry, and corundum in the mental kaleidoscope of the populace into novel permutations. To change the figure, they may give the medulla oblongata, the cerebral organ of the great masses of simple men, a powerful diuretic or emetic, but they seldom, if ever, add anything to its primary supply of fats, proteids, and carbohydrates. One speaks of the great masses of simple men and it is of them, of course, that the ensuing treatise chiefly has to say. The higher and more delicately organized tribes and sects of men are susceptible to no such ready anatomizing, for the body of beliefs upon which their ratiocination grounds itself is not fixed but changing, and not artless and crystal clear, but excessively complex and obscure. It is, indeed, the chief mark of a man emerged from the general, that he has lost most of his original certainties, and is full of a scepticism which plays like a spray of acid upon all the ideas that come within his purview, 
including especially his own. One does not become surer as one advances in knowledge, but less sure. No article of faith is proof against the disintegrating effects of increasing information. One might almost describe the acquirement of knowledge as a process of dissolution. But among the humbler ranks of men who make up the great bulk of every civilized people, the increase of information is so slow and so arduous that this effect is scarcely to be discerned. If, in the course of long years, they gradually lose their old faiths, it is only to fill the gaps with new faiths that restate the old ones in new terms. Nothing, in fact, could be more commonplace than the observation that the crazes which periodically ravage the proletariat today are, in the main, no more than distorted echoes of delusions cherished centuries ago. The fundamental religious ideas of the lower orders of Christendom have not changed materially in two thousand years, and they were old when they were first borrowed from the heathen of northern Africa and Asia Minor. The Iowa Methodist of today, imagining him competent to understand them at all, would be able to accept the tenets of Augustine without changing more than a few accents and punctuation marks. Every Sunday, his raucous ecclesiastics batter his ears with diluted and debased filches from the Chiwitati Dei, and almost every article of his practical ethics may be found clearly stated in the eminent bishop's ninety-third epistle. And so in politics. The Bolsheviki of the present not only pull-parrot the balderdash of the French demagogues of 1789, they also mouth what was gospel to every bete blonde in the Teutonic forest of the fifth century. Truth shifts and changes like a cataract of diamonds. Its aspect is never precisely the same at two successive instants. But error flows down the channel of history like some great stream of lava or infinitely lethargic glacier. It is the one relatively fixed thing in a world of chaos. It is, perhaps, the one thing that gives human society the small stability that it needs, amid all the oscillation of a gelatinous cosmos, to save it from the wreck that ever menaces. Without their dreams, men would have fallen upon and devoured one another long ago. And yet, every dream is an illusion, and every illusion is a lie. Nevertheless, this immutability of popular ideas is not quite perfect. The main current, no doubt, goes on unbrokenly, but there are many eddies along the edges and many small tempests on the surface. Thus, the aspect changes, if not the substance. What men believe in one century is apparently abandoned in some other century, and perhaps supplanted by something quite to the contrary or, at all events, to the contrary in appearance. Off goes the head of the king, and tyranny gives way to freedom. The change seems abysmal. Then, bit by bit, the face of freedom hardens, and by and by it is the old face of tyranny. Then another cycle, and another. But under the play of all these opposites, there is something fundamental and permanent— the basic delusion that men may be governed and yet be free. It is only on the surface that there are transformations, and these we must study and make the most of, for of what is underneath men are mainly unconscious. The thing that colors the upper levels is largely the instinctive functioning of race and nationality, the ineradicable rivalry of tribe and tribe, the primary struggle for existence. At bottom, no doubt, the plain men of the world are almost indistinguishably alike. 
A learned anthropologist, Professor Dr. Boas, has written a book to prove it. But, collected into herds, they gather delusions that are special to herds. Beside the underlying mass thinking, there is a superimposed group thinking, a sort of unintelligent class consciousness. This we may prod into. This, in the case of the Homo Americanus, is what is prodded into in the present work. We perform, it seems to us, a useful pioneering. Incomplete, though our data may be, it is at least grounded upon a resolute avoidance of a priori methods, an absolutely open-minded effort to get at the facts. We pounce upon them as they bop up, convinced that even the most inconsiderable of them may have its profound significance, that the essential may be hidden in the trivial. All we aim at is a first marshalling of materials, an initial running of lines. We are not architects, but furnishers of bricks, nails, and laths. But it is our hope that what we thus rake up and pile into a rough heap may yet serve the purposes of an organizer, and so help toward the establishment of the dim and vacillating truth, and rid the scene of, at all events, the worst and most obvious of its present accumulation of errors. End of chapter 1